0: The is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: From
2: Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Some people read the local paper for news or sports. Others head straight to the opinion columns. That's where you'll find Dick Yarborough who has never run short of opinions. The iconic, and often ironic, opinion-wielder enters half a million homes in Georgia and addresses more than one million readers each week in 37 newspapers across the state. More often than not, he is welcome. The Georgia Press Association named Dick's column Most Humorous several times, although some politicians don't appreciate his on-target barbs. But writing a column that runs in so many papers is just one of his talents. He's also author of two books, a former telecommunications and PR executive and mentor to many UGA journalism students. We welcome Dick Yarborough to our studio on the heels of celebrating his 1,000th column. Congratulations. Thank you, Virginia. Thanks for being here.
3: So what keeps you going? 1,000 columns. Uh, I, I still have opinions yet to be given, and there's still enough humor-impaired people out there that need to hear them.
2: (laughs) Humor-impaired people. Well, judging from the feedback you get on your columns, you are either a bedwetting liberal or a redneck bigot or some variety of wig nut.
3: Yes, guilty. (laughs) All of the above? All of the above. Uh, Some people have a hard time not categorizing you into a slot, and I take great pride in not being categorized. And when somebody thinks they have me figured out, I head in a totally different direction.
2: So are there any favorite bits of feedback that you've seen from readers or otherwise?
3: Oh, yes. I had uh, one lady who you can hear them sputter through their email who said that she had a new dog. She was going to lay her column down face up and use it for the dog's puppy (laughs) training, which I was sort of flattered by. I didn't tell her I was on the computer a lot because I didn't want her dog being on the computer. So well, that would mess things it up. It would. So, but anyway, it's it's fun, and uh, I I tell people that if I give out strong opinions, then I deserve to get back strong opinions. And most of my mail, I must say, I'm I'm uh, pleased to say, a lot of people feel like they have a voice in what I say, particularly public education, which Mm. is a big, big issue with me. Well,
2: you're known for having a sense of humor about a lot of different issues, but this is in an age of rancor and bitterness. So is is a sense of humor, is that a coping strategy?
3: I think it is, and I think a lot of people uh, appreciate that. I tell people I know more about politics than anybody in the world. And I'm so willing to tell people. And my wife says, nobody cares. Everybody's writing about politics, write about human interest. And so I do. And when I do, I get a tremendous amount of mail. And I think people are kind of relieved. It's like an oasis in the middle of all this strife and anger and stuff that goes on. And so uh, I try to I, I I try to be serious, and I take my job very seriously, but I try to take myself not so seriously.
2: You have jumped into some political minefields, however, advocating for the wall. In fact, a few walls to be built, not along the U.S. southern border, but where do you think we uh, need walls? Along the
3: Mason-Dixon line. We have a lot of uh, aliens coming in who uh, put butter on their sandwich bread and... Uh, don't know what collards are or uh, sweet tea and barbecue. And so I think it's a public service to try to either educate them before they cross the wall or just have them step there where it snows 10 months a year and all the buildings are rusted.
2: And you also advocate for one along the western border.
3: Yes, I do. Uh, uh, People over in Alabama, uh, I just think they need to stay over there and play football. That's about the main thing they do over there. So uh, they're welcome to it. Well, it is
2: not all fun and games. Let's go back to your diary entry. This is July twenty seventh, nineteen ninety six. The single most traumatic day of my thirty years in business. You write, "That's the day, or really the early morning, a bomb exploded at Centennial Olympic Park." How do you, how
3: do you remember that now,
2: twenty three years later?
3: Uh, it's hard not to remember. We had a, uh, a crisis communication set up, and where I would be notified, uh, along with Billy Payne, the I minute. Mean, anything of of a variety of, of uh, things that might happen. Uh, praying to God this would never happen. And it was on the middle Saturday, Friday night early Saturday, when we thought we had gotten past all of the problems of running the games. And uh, so I got that call that there had been a bomb, and they didn't know how many people had been killed at that time. And I remember just being in a daze. And one of the things I remember, and this is interesting, of all the things, I remember being in my automobile, driving down uh, I-75 uh, with nobody else on the road. And I looked at my speedometer, and I was doing over 100 miles an hour. And I just remembered that in my head, thinking, gosh, I'm going 100 miles an hour. And from there until the next day is was simply a blur. Yeah. It was a bad dream. And it's interesting that so many types of things have happened like that since that it doesn't look that big in today's terroristic uh, potential world. Right. It, two a p- two people
2: killed, there. 100 people injured. But yeah. that that's actually something that I found very interesting about it you had uh, uh, what is it Billy Rathburn who was who was Bill, Rathburn head, Bill right. Rathburn head of security and had been working with you for years leading up to that but they didn't feel like there was going to be a big threat from the outside world of course this is before September 11th many 5 years before that uh, because there'd been a lot of warning to look for extremist violence and chatter, and you also didn't think now it's not going to happen from a local uh, militia or a southeast. Those that had been operating in the southeast, and of course the yeah. Oklahoma City bombing at that time. It's this this absolute unexpected nature of well,
3: it. Well, and we had been warned by uh, federal law enforcement officials. You can't stop a random act of violence. However, they told us they would be quick to catch whoever they, whoever did it. And in this case, it took five years to catch the bomber, and he was caught by a rookie sheriff uh, deputy in North Carolina climbing out of a dumpster. Mm. So that gave me some pause how good are we at catching these people.
2: I'm speaking with the humorist and award-winning columnist Dick Yarbrough. He's written more than 1,000 columns for now 37 publications throughout Georgia, but he also is the author of a book called, And They Call Them Games, An Inside View of the 1996 Olympics, his memoir of his role heading External Affairs for the ACOG. That's the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games. Well, you know Clint Eastwood is working on a film about Richard Jewell, right? The man the FBI falsely and quickly accused as responsible for the bombing, later exonerated. Are you looking forward to seeing that portrayed in a major motion picture? I
3: hope Brad Pitt will play me because we (laughs) look so much alike. It's (laughs) eerie. Was
2: going to ask you. Yeah. If I if I shut my eyes, um,
3: it's eerie. It really (laughs) is. It's only about a fifty year difference in our age, but other than that, uh, he's the guy.
2: This was a book that, you know, told the story of, of something that you'd pulled off an amazing feat. I mean, a $1.7 billion budget, mostly private raised through yeah. private funding, right? Yeah. Um, the Olympics in Atlanta at that time, but also some accusations against you, you know— uh, Selling, selling Atlanta as a symbol of the New South, but displacing poor residents for the Olympics and um, that kind of thing. I'm wondering, if any of that pushback, how does that feel to you today?
3: We knew at the time we were doing this, Virginia, that the Olympics was a great platform for any special issue that anybody had. So if you had a uh, cross to bear, uh, we were the megaphone in order to do it. And so what you do is just put your head down and do your job, do the best you can do. And uh, what got me into my writing career was a criticism of the city of Atlanta after the games, because I don't think they lived up to their part of the bar. The games, and when you got inside the venue, the games were terrific. Mm. Uh, they, we had more records set than ever been set. And one of the interesting things, it was the advent of uh, equality in women's athletics. We sold more tickets to women's events in 1996 than Barcelona had sold tickets in 1992 primarily because of the uh, inclusion of more women's events and the soccer football competition in Athens uh, had almost 100,000 people to see the women's finals. So the the games were great. Uh, The city uh, was like the dog that caught the car. They got it and didn't know what to do with it. And uh, we had traffic problems. We had competing uh, advertising issues with the city. And uh, I, I thought the media coverage was sophomoric and so I had a chance to tee off on this a couple of years after the games and I did and so after having sworn to my wife I would quit working. Uh, Somebody asked me to write a second one, a third one and so now 21 years later. You're hooked. I'm, I'm hooked. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you did study journalism at UGA, but you were managing PR for one of the country's largest corporations at the time, the baby bell, Bell South. Yeah. That, and of course, the Olympic Committee, these are highly visible positions where you're staying on message and free of controversial statements. I mean, that's paramount in those jobs. Now you're doing an opinion column, and you have for 20-odd t- years now. Mm-hmm. I Did Do you feel Did you feel untethered? Do you feel like you could say whatever you wanted?
3: I do, and the lawyers can't touch me now, so I don't have to put big words in to obfuscate what I'm saying. But I think, uh, speaking of the University of Georgia, it's interesting to know that the money from the column all go to fellowships in the journalism school at the University so of Georgia. So you're not oh,
2: making money off of this?
3: I'm not making money off of it at all. I, I send it over there, and the fellowships go to kids, that I could not qualify for one of the fellowships. I'm not smart enough, and uh, these are just bright, bright kids, and they're very sought after, and it gives them a lot of work experience, and it is just the most gratifying thing I do. And I also have a uh, chair in crisis communications mm-hmm. leadership. I want these next generation of young people to be at that table so when a crisis occurs, you ask the lawyer what we should do, and then you ask your your ex your communications expert, what you should do.
2: So that's a a big civic act, you know, training this next generation. Being a widely read columnist is a very powerful position. And I was moved recently. I read David Brooks' most recent book. He's a well known columnist, New York Times, and mm-hmm. also he's on NPR. It's called The Second Mountain. And it was about the personal pitfalls of that position that you are, there's a kind of ego trap in it, that you are always throwing stuff out there and looking for what you're getting back. And in many ways, uh, Of course, you know, the ego is a necessary construction. You've got something to say. You want to say it. But I wondered if that's anything that you wrestle with in your life. I do.
3: And I was, when I wrote the book on the uh, games, I called Harold Burson, who was chairman of the largest PR firm in the country, and I said, do you have any advice? He said, get your dates right because if they're wrong, they will always be wrong. And don't hurt people. And so I uh, I have a wife who uh, monitors that, and sometimes I can get a little testy, and she says that's very hurtful. She's Don't... your editor. Yeah, she's my editor. I've got some great columns that never made it into print. That uh, I walked in one day and said, "This is the funniest thing I've ever written," and she looked at it and said, "You're not going to put that in the paper." So, <laughs> she is a, she's a good monitor for me as to to keep from getting angry and and you know hurting somebody. People got families and. Uh, so I try to moderate that a little bit, and uh, and and you know, and I try to self-deprecate myself so that I don't feel that I'm as important as maybe somebody else would think I am.
2: So, you're also something that a lot of people may not know about you. You are an exhibiting artist.
3: Oh, that is my passion. You're a painter. I am a painter. When did you discover that? I discovered it after I retired. I had always sketched and drawn and cartooned, and uh, a neighbor of mine, next-door neighbor in fact, said, you should take some art lessons. And I did reluctantly, and I discovered something that, you know, they say old dogs can learn new tricks, and I did. It's the most satisfying, gratifying thing that I think I've ever done is to paint. And I've got a painting down at the Capitol, uh, I've got uh, a painting at, uh, at one of the colleges and one of the libraries, and I don't sell them. I give them away and because I, the joy is in painting, not in making any money off of it. So, but I hope to continue to do that for some time to come.
2: So in addition to mentoring students and your work with the crisis management, uh, what's something you would tell your college student
3: self? slow down a bit and smell the roses Uh, I'm in my third career now so I did not take my own advice but uh, just enjoy life uh, particularly while you're in college what a unique experience that is so that's my advice that I do give to the kids you know learn how to add subtract multiply and divide and enjoy the time you're here
2: Dick Yarborough an old dog (laughs) (laughs)
3: learning
2: another trick thank you so much thank
3: you so much for having me it's been enjoyable
2: Dick Yarborough, legendary Georgia columnist. He's written more than 1,000 columns for dozens of publications around the state. Here's to 1,000 more. We are back with On Second Thought from JPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Augusta's economy is booming big time. The metro area's GDP has increased more than $1.5 billion since 2015, outpacing national growth and on track to eclipse the state's rate, too. That good news follows decades of struggle. C. Stachura has been reporting on the turnaround thanks to the emerging cybersecurity field.
0: Presiding over the Augusta Commons is a statue of James Brown. The commons is a manicured green space that has hosted everything from food trucks to ice rinks. But to the statue's back is a hulking building with a shattered plate glass window. That's today's Augusta, halfway between thriving and desolate. Up a block is the Soul Bar, where the downtown's revival started. Coco Rubio opened the bar in 1995, the same year the city of Augusta went broke.
3: To me, it was neat to use music to get people to come out because they were always like well what why are people going to go downtown what are they gonna you know there's nothing to do down there
0: augusta's decline had begun in the 1960s when over 20 percent of the city's white population fled to the suburbs in 1970 a race riot destroyed the city's black business district and the city's population plummeted the soul bar had opened in a ghost town
3: and the rent was so cheap 250 a month with an option to buy the building
0: now that would rent you a bathroom in one of the few remaining downtown apartments. Augusta-Richmond County Commissioner Sean Frantum says city leadership and private developers are building more housing. Meanwhile, medical students are moving into poor, historically black neighborhoods to be close to their campus. And Fort Gordon soldiers and their families need more housing, too.
4: Nobody wants to hear the word gentrification happen
2: in their neighborhood, Um, but some of these developers are buying up multiple properties, tearing down dilapidated houses and creating kind of an economic boom
0: and the Georgia Cyber Center is it's in the thick incredible. of it right downtown.
3: Um, I just want to point out here so this is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Cybercrime Center and so they take up half of this this floor. Uh, Eric Toller is the executive director of the, the, the uh, center.
0: Toller's other tenants include three higher ed institutions and two international defense contractors. Over the next five years, the U.S. military will invest $1 billion at Fort Gordon. Toller says the greater Augusta area expects to see 10,000 new cyber-related jobs. But more than half of Augusta-Richmond County's adults only hold high school diplomas.
3: You'll have very few people that can graduate from a high school program and go to work right away. The norm would be to go into a technical college route.
0: So the cyber center is partnering with local school systems and colleges on a cyber curriculum. But for now, the people filling these and other jobs will be transplants, like Sean Edwards. He's the executive director of the Augusta Land Bank Authority, which helps the city revitalize blighted properties. He says one of two groups is going to determine the city's future.
4: It's going to be people like me who moved here intentionally, voluntarily, or it's going to be people who were born here and were raised here and still live here. And the people like me got a head start.
0: Edwards says the city does seem to be listening to all its residents. So there's hope that the Augustans who lived through the hard times will benefit from the cyber boom, too.
2: C. Stachura there reporting for GPB, and she's with us from Augusta to tell us more. Hello, C. Hi. So as we heard, Augusta's economy has been struggling since the 70s, some traction with healthcare care and manufacturing. Why was cybersecurity the one that worked for Augusta and for the industry?
1: Well, the, the health industry kind of reached a saturation point when the city developed six hospitals. But when when us Army decided when the. US army decided to build to, to move its cyber center down to augusta that really created a, a huge push in in from other companies to do the same For example unisys corporation opened a facility in downtown Augusta that now houses 500 500 employees and that was back in 2016. So
2: prior to the Cyber Center's opening, you mentioned Unisys had opened. But now Augusta University started a training program in 2015 for people to work in the field, in the cybersecurity field. Fort Gordon, of course, has become a kind of cybersecurity hub. So which drove which, do you think?
1: Really, it was, uh, it was Fort Gordon driving the university prior to uh, – uh, Prior to that announcement, the university hadn't had any cyber-specific programs. Uh, so really, we were seeing in, in 2010, NSA opened one of its only cryptologic centers in, in Georgia. It has only five others in the nation. And then we already had the C- Signals Center, which trains all of Army cyber uh, professionals so when you add that third piece of the headquarters of of cyber warfare down to Georgia, that really, you know, the university saw its opportunity to grow.
2: And the state, the Georgia Technology Authority, is, owns the center, but with all of these partners, and on a pretty aggressive timeline. Uh, just about a year ago, the center was a hundred million dollar state investment hatched during Governor Deal's administration. Were particular companies, local interests, or politicians pushing the government to fund it?
1: I think that there was a a synergy going on. Uh, I can't answer that definitively, but we do know that there were already 12,000 open cyber jobs in Georgia, and most of those were in Atlanta. So Augusta needed a means for a pipeline we also know that uh, Georgia Power, AT&T, and Coca-Cola had been pushing for more cyber training, and the IT um, authority of the state had also been looking to create more opportunities for partnerships and education.
2: See, we just have a minute. The influx of cyber industry prompts some are saying that Augusta could be the new Silicon Valley of the South. Does that have idea have any weight?
1: Yeah, it could uh, it could become like D.C. and San Antonio. It could also uh, spike in terms of affordability. We're already seeing some downtown rents, commercial and residential, tripling. Uh, so that could be another way that we become like those cities.
2: See Statura joining us from Augusta. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. this song? La Cucaracha has been adapted and performed by everybody from Charlie Parker to Liberace and even the children's group The Wiggles. You're listening to Louis Armstrong's instrumental version. It's also a staple for mariachi bands and is part of a long line of folk songs from Mexico called Corridos. Corridos. A new album by the Athens based musician and activist Beto Cacao carries on the tradition of this musical form. The album is called Undocorridos, songs from the stories and struggles of the undocumented in the U.S. We invited Beto to our studio at WUGA in Athens to learn more.
4: Uh, my name is Beto Cacao. I live in Athens, Georgia. Originally from Mexico City, and I came to visit my brother here in Athens late 1999. And since there, I live in, in Athens. So, the corridos are the um, ballads from uh, the revolution time. These ballads were created before there was any writing newspaper in Mexico. And it was the way to preserve the stories, to tell news from one town to the other. These um, songs, they were telling the stories of important people back in the days. My new album is Ondo Corridos, Songs of the Stories and the Struggle of the Undocumented in USA. Um, Ondo Corridos is a collection of the songs and my, my experiences in USA. Uh, some of these are stories of the uh, particular person or uh, stories of a raid. When I say on the corridos, I don't attempt to create any new style of corridos. I just suggest a new name for the corridos, tell the stories of undocumented immigrants in USA. So it's another attempt to bring the dignity of corridos and, and the original uh, reason they born. And it was that to tell the the stories for the people, for the voiceless people, and also to keep alive the oral history in in Mexico. So all these factors, I just want to combine it with uh, my activism in USA. Um, The old song in, in this album, uh, Los Inmigrantes de Stillmore. And this is the story of Stillmore, Georgia. It was a, a big raid. And this small town had more than 80-90%. The workers were undocumented. So one day the um, uh, immigration raid Stillmore, this trailer park, and people run to the forest and they were hide in the forest for about five days. They leave the town, and the town, who, who was surviving because the taxes people pay in the water, uh, start dying. So the mayor came publicly asking for these migrants, or Mexicans, to come back, because the town was suffering. <laughs> La luces Me persiguen. The lights follow me. The other the songs here I was mentioned DWH, which stays for driving white Hispanic, tell the stories about this police officer who was outside of a Latino neighborhood and he was following people until they make a small mistake and they're driving and he stopped them. Um, back in the days when I start documenting this story, um, I heard from five different people who was stopped by the same police the same day. And uh, only three of them come up and tell me their story. So I tell the story of Jorge, uh, Candido and Maria. So I attempt to document how the Russian profile works in the profiling people of color uh, with the driving laws here in Georgia. Following to close Was in the tiger Muy buenas tardes a todos Hoy yo les vengo a cantar La triste historia de un hombre Hombre derecho y caballo The other song is El Corrido de Pedro Corisquieta. This is a story of one of my neighbors who, one day in the morning, he went to work, uh, high wind, uh, this storm. So we, the neighbors, we heard uh, the tree falling down over his car, and he died immediately. And we gathered around him and cut the tree in pieces, but he already was dead. What was more remarkable is that the, the day the funeral, the community gathering around the police and the fire department came to the funeral. Also, people from different religions, they're not Catholic, they're Christians or other religions, they came to offer support for the widow. And the local newspaper, the Athens Martin Herald, they make a story about him. So for me, uh, because I knew Pedro, and I knew that he was not an important person in the community, he lived very poor, and he didn't even have a family in Mexico. And he he doesn't have any relatives in, in the States. So it was amazing for me how this bring together the whole Athens, especially in the times when we heard this rhetoric against immigrants. So in one moment, uh, we're talking against immigrants and how they're criminals. And the next day, we recognize that this person is a human being and we have to pay respect for, for him because he was part of the community. Immigrants has presence in every single aspect in USA. I think that immigrants telling their stories, but people is not listening. Even the, the construction workers, when you build a house, and you see that house, you you see yourself reflected there. People who don't build, people who don't make anything, they they are empty. But immigrants, they build the roads. And when they walking in those roads, they were thinking, man, I was working here when it was 100 degree, and I was very thirsty and I almost die. But this here, this is this road and everybody can use that road. Immigrants, um, they're every single corner, uh, but they're high, you know, working, uh, cleaning dishes in the welcoming industry. Every hotel room is clean by uh, mostly undocumented immigrants. My work here with Undocorritos is just to highlight. I do more like um, interpretation of the stories the immigrants who are around me trying to say. I have everybody here in my album. Um, So I try to be open for anyone who wants to listen, who wants to find uh, the stories of the people who lives in, in this area. Somos corridos de todas partes That was Athens-based
2: activist and musician Beto Cacao. His new album is called Undo Corridos, and it's made up of traditional folk songs called Corridos, but in this case, telling the story of undocumented immigrants here in the U.S. You can find more on the album at gpbnews.org.
4: Somos inocentes, no nos oye.
2: And we are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Two weeks ago, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that 17,000 poor, elderly, or disabled Georgians had lost their Medicaid benefits, The State Department of Community Health said their accounts were terminated for not responding to renewal notices. notices. Now, just today, the AJC reports state officials have revealed the number of people slated to lose Medicaid will be 30,000. Many of those have already dropped, and their lawyers say they never received those notices, and now they're fighting to get their benefits back. Ariel Hart broke the story and has been following it for the AJC. She joins me now in the studio. Ariel, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Elisa Haber is also with us. She's a staff attorney at the Georgia Senior Legal Hotline, assisting seniors all over the state to apply for and keep their Medicaid benefits. Hello, Elisa. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, Ariel, first, because Medicare and Medicaid often get confused, what and who is covered under Medicaid? Right.
5: So, yeah, Medicare is generally the program for the elderly. Medicaid is generally... Generally the program for the younger poor and children. In this case, these folks often have both. They have Medicare, and they're, um, they are elderly, or they are disabled, um, or just... Um, uh, or both, and they are also so poor that Medicaid steps in additionally to take care of the gaps in Medicare coverage. So Medicaid would be paying like their premium, their monthly premium of more than a hundred dollars a month, their copays, and their uh, prescriptions.
2: So, and of the seventeen thousand, of course, broadly all over the state, age all over range,
5: the state. Um, and so. I'm getting slightly, um, I'm getting not complete information about that, but in general, we know that all, if a lot, if not all of them, are age-blind and disabled. How were they notified that they've been cut from Medicaid? So that is the big question. Um, yesterday, for the first time, I got a really full explanation from the two agencies that are involved in this, DCH and DFACS, the Department of Community Health and the Division of Family and Children's Services. Um The state says that notices were sent to all of these people. You are, uh, it's time to renew, you have to renew, and then we haven't heard from you. Uh, If you don't renew, you're going to get cut off. And then that led to this situation. Um, Folks like Elisa and some lawyers are saying different. Elisa, what are lawyers
6: saying? What we are seeing at the senior hotline is different than that. The notices that came out that said, that we are terminating you, that this story broke is a May 3rd notice that says your certification period has ended. And that's it. There's no chance to renew. No invitation to renew. Right. And versus, and I have clients that happen to, I have other clients that were up for renewal during this same time period. And those folks have the regular renewal notices, such as an April 15th, hey, it's time to renew. You can go online. You can uh, come pick up a form at DFACS, all of these options. And then I have in one particular client who didn't get the paperwork in in time. He then got a May 12th notice saying, hey, we still haven't heard from you. It's time to renew. If you don't do this, we're going to have to close it on May 31st. That is a stark difference from these May 3rd notices that say your certification period has ended, you can appeal. And do these come via email? So the notices come to them in the mail. USPS? Yes. Okay. So one
2: can't go back through their computer files and say, look, we never saw anything from you, for example.
6: So this is a big issue of how do you prove that you didn't get something. We at Georgia Legal, uh, the Senior Legal Hotline. We're able to, and Georgia Legal Services, who is working with these clients, um, with clients' permission, will go on their Gateway account to look to see what notices are there or not. And in the ones that are part of this seventeen thousand, now thirty thousand people, there are no notices that show up at all on Gateway, except for that May third. There's you don't see the ones that go back saying April 15th, here's your first notice, here's your first warning. Ariel, I want to just, yes.
5: Yeah, and to to be clear, um, so the lawyers and the hotline have not seen all 30,000 people. They have had a ton of calls, but um, the only, uh, you know, I guess the only way to verify that it's all 30,000 people is to go into all 30,000 accounts and look and see where these notices sent. Um, DCH and Dfax are saying that we have looked into this computer issue. They're the ones who own the servers. And we can say that 68 people did not get notices as they should have. But so
2: that's a far cry from 17,000. That's a far 000. cry from
5: 17,000 or 30,000, mm-hmm. well, as it's, it's going to be. Um, you know, that said... Um, uh, you know, I was, I was talking to some of the lawyers this morning and to Elisa, and um, they think that the number and suddenness of the calls that they're getting speak to a larger number.
2: Okay. So can you explain for us the difference between the 17,000, now 30,000?
5: Right. So um, this all resulted from a backlog. Um, the a computer system that was supposed to manage these cases that would alert a caseworker, okay, this, this person has not responded, um, please review this case as a human being and, and make sure that it's ready for termination, and then um, that caseworker would terminate. Those alerts weren't happening, and so the cases weren't getting purged um, as apparently they're supposed to do. Okay. So. And so uh, somebody noticed that that last year. And uh, as we broke the story on the AJC this morning on AJC.com, that resulted in a backlog of 30,000 cases. DCH or DFACs uh, and DCH decided to break those into two groups, 17,000 to be terminated um, on, I believe, on June 1st. And then the other 13,000 were slated to go in another month. But um, they are now reviewing those. I I think they're doing that, um, you know, following all the outcry. And, and so what kind of options will people who
2: were cut off have to re-enroll? Yeah,
5: that's another issue. I mean, and to me, that's almost the biggest issue because it speaks to the pr- customer service problem, that e- even if all of these people had gotten notices or suddenly re- realized that their benefits were cut off f- um, for incorrect reasons, you would hope that they could um, just call up and get it reversed. And it's... They can, DCH and the state and DFACS are offering them until August 30, uh, until. August and don't uh, August thirty first. Okay, August thirty first yep. to reapply um, and and renew and and get this all reversed and get their money back.
6: I, I have had some clients be able to get their renewal forms in, and I just spoke with a client yesterday afternoon, and she was walking to her mailbox and said, "I got a letter. Let me read it to you." and She was approved. So we were, she was crying, literally crying. It was like she had won the lottery because now she's not going to have money taken out of her check each month. But that's only one client. So
2: Well, let's, let's just listen. We did call the State Department of Community Health to get an idea of what it would be like for someone needing to reinstate benefits. And here's what we heard. The state of Georgia values education and wants every child to graduate from high school. So be prepared to talk with your case manager about your child's educational status, because we want every child to succeed. And then the next option was repeated a couple of times. To your application status, renewal status, or current case status, you will need to enter the Social Security number and date of birth or client ID of the person listed as the head of household. And it took about four minutes to arrive at the option to dial an operator. Then we got this. All of our agents are assisting other customers. We will call you back today in the
1: order received.
2: As of 9 o'clock this morning, we still had not heard back. This was calls were made yesterday afternoon. So as for those who have already been removed from the system,
6: Elisa, what are you hearing from people? Is there an appeal process? So we have advised clients to file an appeal for many of our clients. That means we have to help them with that appeal because they don't have the transportation to get to defects or they get to defects and they are given the runaround in the office. So they need to renew. They also, I mean, they need to request the hearing, but we are encouraging them to submit a renewal form. It's called a 508 renewal. And That is, I didn't count the pages, I think it's 15 pages, parts of it have to do with Medicaid, and so maybe only about three to four pages, but you have to go through it. And I literally spent 45 minutes on the phone yesterday with a client trying to figure out which parts she needed to fill in just to get that renewal done.
2: That's Elisa Haber. She's a staff attorney with the Georgia Senior Legal Hotline, and I'm also speaking with AJC reporter Ariel Hart, who broke the story about 17,000 poor, disabled, or elderly Georgians being cut from Medicaid. Well, an update on that story, it looks like it'll be 30,000. Now, the State Department of Community Health said those clients did not renew their benefits and those Uh, clients said they never got those renewal notices. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about numbers, but let's put a little bit of a face on this. Uh, Ariel, you... Spoke to Louis Askew, 70-year-old Army veteran who depends on Social Security and Medicaid. How did he find out his account had been terminated?
5: So he found out um, he got a termination notice. And indeed, um, his lawyers, when, when he called uh, Georgia Legal Services, the nonprofit lawyers who are helping a lot of these people across the state, uh, were able to look in his case on the gateway computer system and see that indeed no notice had been sent to him prior to the termination notice. So where does that leave him? You know, I mean, so he tried to solve it on his own. He called the phone number, um, and he went to offices and uh, had to go to a couple of different offices to get to the correct one. Uh, he's lucky in that he had uh, transportation that day, that he was able to do that. A lot of these folks have no computer, no transportation, sometimes no phone. Um, and then, you know, he's uh, he's got his wits together, and he finally gave up. And um, on each state notice, there is contact information for the lawyers. And so he went to the lawyers.
2: Okay. So the state provides confirmation yes, uh, information that, for the lawyers. Exactly. So, all right. You've spoken with lawyers helping these folks. You are a lawyer <laughs> yourself, Alyssa. Alyssa, rather, is there any potential legal liability for DCH in this case? I, you know, can you go back to them and say, we want retroactive benefits or...
6: Well, what we're look at with these is there is and this is the from from a perspective of our clients, when you file a renewal, the idea is to have no break in benefits. But if it if the termination happens and they have to reapply, which is what seems to be indicated that hey, you can reapply within ninety days. What happens, remember she said that you They pay for the premium. That's $135 a month. For many of my clients, that's more than 10% of their income. And if that gets taken out, then their budget can be shot. And so this affects our clients in so many ways that if they don't get that appeal in in time or do this process, they're going to, yes. They will get what's called retroactive back benefits, but at that point, they might have missed a payment on rent. I had one client ask me could I write a letter to his landlord because he was in this process and he wasn't going to have the money to pay his rent. What is the normal process for renewal of benefits? Is it done annually? So, yes, and What's interesting is in this particular problem with the May 3rd notices terminating on May 31st, I have other clients who were facing a May 31st termination um or end of eligibility if they didn't renew, but they got the process. So they weren't part of this. They were just, it was their annual review date. And for them, they're able to go and do with the notice that they get, they can either renew based on that notice or they can log into um, Gateway. The problem, even with the regular notices, I know we're talking about this huge, massive um, termination across the state. But just on an everyday basis, when clients get the notice saying it's time to renew, it doesn't have a renewal form in there. And so many of the clients, without the lack of, they, they don't have access to a computer, they don't have transportation to get to defects, they go to defects and can't be seen or talk to somebody, then with they don't have that renewal, so they call us just like um, Mr. Askew. They find our number on those forms and eventually call us and say, I've been trying for days, weeks, months, and can't get anybody, and I send them their renewal.
5: Yeah, and I want to add, you would know better than I, but what I've heard is that once the lawyers get involved and start dealing with defects, you know, there's a willingness to help, a willingness to try and figure out what's gone wrong, but um to me that kind of gets to the larger issue here is there's no one evil deciding that people shouldn't get Medicaid. People come on and off of benefits all the time. And if you just let uh, all cases accumulate to the end of time, we wouldn't be able to serve the people that the state needs to serve because there wouldn't be enough money. But when the bureaucracy is not working, um, it it really makes it very difficult to make sure that the right that the right people are getting benefits that are meant to get benefits, and DFACS has told me that they are down five hundred workers. These are the people that process cases. The um, they're finding it very difficult to hire people. The salary that uh, is offered is twenty seven thousand dollars a year, which you know. Um, uh, uh, if you know, I certainly wouldn't hire um, a lawyer who's willing to make twenty seven thousand dollars a year unless they're very, very. Um you know, working in the nonprofit sector, He would probably yeah, know better yeah, than I. But, Saturday. but you know, that's that's under poverty level for a family of five. So I think that there are a lot of difficulties here that go far beyond the immediate news.
2: Okay. Well, uh, and I'm guessing that people who did not get dropped should pay special attention to their renewal yes, notices. Yes, definitely.
6: And call the Georgia Senior Legal Hotline.
2: Okay. Well, thank you both so much for being with us, Atlanta Atlanta Journal Constitution reporter Ariel Hart, who have broke the story and has been following it. Thanks so much. Thank you. And Elisa Elisa Haber, she's staff attorney with the Georgia Senior Legal Hotline. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we do have some good, positive news to share. Over the weekend, On Second Thought won second place in the prestigious nationwide Prindy Awards. That's for the Public Radio News Directors Incorporated. And the award was for Best News Public Affairs Program in the Country, which beat out programs in other large markets like New York and Chicago and in L.A. So thanks to LaRaven Taylor and to Tyler Morris, who produced the winning show, and to all of our team. And thank you for listening to On Second Thought for supporting it and making this national award-winning show possible. If you'd like to hear our award-winning interview, it was my conversation with a former Imperial Nighthawk of the North Georgia KKK and a Muslim cardiologist who became his friend you can go to gpbnews.org. If you missed that or any of today's show, you can sign up for our podcast. Go to the Programs tab for Onsak and Thought and GPB News and subscribe so you'll never miss any of our award-winning programming. La-dee-da.
0: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind.